scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 21, chapter 20, chapter 21, beginning in verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on his stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning again. It is it's good to be with you. Well, this morning is about one thing, right? It's always every Lord's Day about one thing, our Lord Jesus Christ. But today, specifically, as we are thinking about the resurrection, 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's because of the resurrection that the scriptures say, weep no more. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What has he conquered? He's conquered Satan. He's conquered death. And he's conquered sin. So that these powers would no longer have power over us. That we would no longer be enslaved to them anymore. It's on this basis that our Lord can say, To the one whom the Son sets free, is free indeed. And this is all possible because of the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, here's the hope of the resurrection for us. No matter what happens in this world, whatever happens in your life, the resurrection says this to us. Ultimately, everything is going to be all right. Ultimately, everything's going to be set right. And we can place our hope in that truth. The only question for us this morning is do we believe that Jesus has accomplished this work of redemption on the cross for us? Do we believe that? Or to put it another way, do you believe that Jesus has the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it up again? Do you believe that truth of the gospel? Well, it's this matter of authority which is central to our passage this morning. It's not a conventional, maybe Easter, resurrection sermon, but the resurrection's here, and I'm going to show you. It's very subtle, but it's there, and it's powerful as it always is. But the central element of this passage is Jesus's authority. In fact, this section of Matthew is going to ignite a final dialogue, a final battle, if you will, between Jesus in, and the religious leaders. And this battle is going to be over who has authority and who doesn't. It's a showdown between the religious establishment and, in their eyes, the hillbilly from Nazareth. It's a standoff to see who really knows God and who speaks for God. And while the religious leaders have the teaching credentials, they seemingly have the power Jesus is going to put on display his marvelous wisdom. And he's going to reveal that he is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And even their rejection, this is going to be remarkable, even the rejection that he receives actually confirms his authority. That's where this passage is going to get and where we'll find the resurrection. It's where Jesus quotes Psalm 100. In 18, and see it in verse 42, the stone that the builders rejected, that's Jesus, he's the stone, has become, there's the resurrection, the cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected or crucified has been raised to be the cornerstone. And this is all going to lead to that passage. And so this passage presses upon us a fundamental question, a fundamental question that all of us have to answer, the whole world ultimately has to answer, are we among those who reject the Son and His authority, or are we among those who accept Him and submit to His authority? Do we live for ourselves, 
Are we our, our own authority? Or do we bow to another authority? Because this text is going to let us know there is no middle ground. The Pharisees try to make some middle ground, and it's rather comical and shows their shame. But what we're going to see that that there is no middle ground, but whatever side you fall on, whether you reject the Son or you accept the Son, Jesus remains marvelous. This is the Lord's doing, the psalmist says, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so with this, this in mind this morning, I want us to see what's so marvelous about Christ. I want us to see Jesus' marvelous authority, his marvelous call, his marvelous mission, and his marvelous judgment. Our passage takes place now on the Tuesday leading up to the cross. Now, that's kind of odd for us because now we are on Resurrection Sunday, but our passage is on Tuesday, okay? That's where we are in the timeline. This is the Tuesday before Christ is betrayed and ultimately delivered over to be crucified. And on this day, he, he walks back into the temple just a day later after having gone in and cleansed the temple, flipping the money changer tables, flipping out the tables or the chairs, and, and, and running out all those who were buying and selling in the temple courtyard. And yet Jesus, like a man in charge, like he owns the place, shows up again. And now he begins teaching with authority in their midst. And he does so publicly, including in the sight of the religious leaders. And so these religious leaders, they, they're like, all right, who is this guy? He showed up here yesterday. He flipped over all the money tables. And then he just he, he did some teaching and some healing. And then he, he just walked out. Now he's, he has the boldness. He has the audacity to show his face here again. And so they, they approach him, bewildered. And they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? Or who has given you this authority? I'd been preparing this sermon, and last night uh, was the final four. And I came into our living room, and I think my Lillian, my youngest daughter, was wanting to watch some other show, and I grabbed the remote, and she goes, what are we going to watch? I said, the final four. And she said, no basketball stinks and she goes we're going to watch and she listed her show and I said by what authority do you do these things <laughs> or who has given you that authority I have the authority that is what's going on here okay they're asking these questions because just the, the other day Jesus shows up and acts like he owns the place and now He's teaching with authority. You just can't take the remote from dad. And that's what he's done. He showed up. And you imagine the temple courtyard with the columns. And he's walking around in his robe. And he's got disciples following him. And he's teaching. And they show up and they say, who licensed him to teach? See, in Judaism, you couldn't just appoint yourself as a teacher. You had to go through a rigorous training and education. And then you had to be confirmed in some way if you were going to teach in Israel, certainly in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet here he is, this nobody, this hick from where? Nazareth? 
Who, who invited this hillbilly into the temple and he's just teaching in our teaching spots? And not only that, he's, he's recruiting disciples. He can't be doing that. Noah's followers of Christ were, were faced with a similar question. You and I are faced with a similar question. By what authority do we tell people how to know God? That's what the world looks at us and says, by what authority? Or by what authority are you able to tell us what is right and wrong? Or by what authority can you tell me that my sins can be forgiven? Well, our authority is not in ourselves, is it, right? Our authority is not in ourselves. It's a, a derived authority from someone else, and this someone else is Jesus. But Jesus' authority is inherent to who he is. But Jesus doesn't just assert his authority. They ask him this question, and Jesus doesn't say, well, I am the authority, like I did with my daughter over the remote. No, he doesn't do that. He does it in a far more profound way. <clears throat> like a skilled teacher and wise sage he puts on display his wisdom by giving them a riddle of sorts. He says to them, actually, i got a question for you. And if you can answer my question, well, then I'll answer your question. And so he says this. He goes, you remember John the Baptist? You know, that, that, that weirdo guy who was dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt and was eating locusts dipped in honey? Yeah, yeah, that guy. Got a question for you. Was he from heaven or from man? In other words, was John the Baptist from God or not? That's my question for you. And this put the religious leaders in a bind. They don't know what to do. This puts them on their heels. They've got the crowds around them and, and everyone's looking and like, all right, you, you're, you're the big shots. He's asking you a question. Answer it. And so they all say, well, hold on. We've got to take a time out. Let's go over here and let's huddle. And they start talking. And I say, oh, man, we are in trouble. Why did he ask us that? Because if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? we can't believe him because then we'd have to believe who Jesus is. So that's out of the question. But if we say he's from man, we fear the people are going to go berserk because they think John is a prophet from God. So, all right, guys, I got the plan. Follow me. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And he just stumps them right there. Who's got the authority right now? Who's really in charge? Who's really in power? Well, it's not these. They are held captive by the whims of the people. And so Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you see what Jesus has done here? In a marvelous display of the wisdom, he's actually forced them to come to grips with the answer to their question. They had to come face to face with the reality of the testimony of John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist come and do? John the Baptist came preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven as hand. There is one who comes after me who is greater than me, of, of whom, whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. In other words, you think I'm great? This one's far greater. Oh, there he is. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John came preaching. And if John says this about Jesus, oh, well, then his credentials are all set, right? It's self-evident who he is. And so they come face to face with who Jesus is, but Jesus doesn't have to explicitly say it. But they reject him without cause, don't they? See, the Pharisees can't entertain truth. The world can't entertain truth, brothers and sisters. Because the truth means you must submit to it. It's out of the equation. If we believe that this is true, then we have to obey it. And I want you to understand this, brothers and sisters. People don't reject Jesus because they can disprove his claims of authority. They reject Jesus because he is in authority. You get that? And that's why the world suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. They would believe anything else than the truth because the truth about Christ means I must submit to it. And Jesus displays here in the temple, he has already healed the blind, he has healed the lame, he has raised the dead for goodness sakes. He has done all these things and demonstrated and they saw it. And they do not believe. Why? Because they want to be the authority. And ultimately that is why people do not trust Christ. Because they do not want to bow to his authority. Well, Jesus presses the issue further by now telling them another story. He says, tell you what, I got another one for you. I got another story for you. And, and in this story, he highlights his marvelous call for repentance and faith. <clears throat> he stumped the religious leaders, showing himself now to be a far superior teacher than them. And now he goes on the offense and he asks, asks them to consider another question. And he couches it in a parable. He says, hey guys, got another one for you. What do you think? What do you think? The man had two sons. And he went to the one and he said, son, I want you to go and work in my vineyard. And the son says, no way, I'm out of here. I got plans. And he leaves. But later, he changes his mind, and he says, you know what, I should go and work in the vineyard. And he goes to his second son, and he says, son, I want you to go work in the vineyard. And he says, yes, sir, I always will do whatever you say. And he leaves, is he out of my sight? Good, I'll go do my thing. He says, so guys, let me ask you this question. Which son did the will of his father? The first or the second? Now, the story's pretty straightforward, isn't it? The answer's pretty clear. Even these buffoons, the religious leaders, get the right answer. They say, well, the first son. The first son does the will of the Father. And Jesus here does it again. He masterfully forces the religious leaders to condemn themselves by their own words. Jesus flips it and he says, I want to tell you something. Tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom before you. That's just another way of saying they're going in and you ain't. That's what he's saying. 
Now, to, to understand the, the shock in all of this, this would be like Jesus showing up here on Sunday morning and saying, terrorists and child abusers are going into the kingdom before you. These are the lowest of the low. These are the people, oh no, they could never be saved. And Jesus says, they're going in. Because they're like the first son, many of them. They rejected the father, but they changed their mind. They repented and they believed. But you, religious leaders, scribes, priests, Pharisees, you're like the second son. Oh, on the outside, you, you honor God with your lips. You say, yes, sir, and you, you have all the pleasantries and all the formalities, but you do not do what he says. You're hypocrites. He's going to get to that in chapter 23. You do not practice the righteousness of God. Do you see that in verse 32? For John, he breaks up John the Baptist again came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and the prostitutes, the worst of the worst, the most immoral people that you can think of, they believed the message, and you saw it. You saw people repent and turn from their sins, and you were unmoved. After seeing it, you did not change your minds and believe the good news of the kingdom. When he says, you do not practice righteousness, you do not do the will of the Father, what's he talking about? Righteousness in the Gospel of Matthew has been all about an inward heart change that produces a fruits of loving God and loving neighbor. Those are the two fundamental commandments of God. All the laws filled in those two commandments. You want to please God, love God, and love neighbor. And they didn't. They were, as Jesus says elsewhere, these people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What a warning, right? This is a warning to anyone who would claim to know God, claim to be serious students of God's word, but they do not have the love of God in them. Yet this passage has glorious news, doesn't it? There's glorious news here. There's gold here. Anyone, the vilest offender, even the most self-righteous, Bible-thumping Christian who changes his mind and believes will go into the kingdom. The gates of righteousness are open wide. Anyone who repents and believes in Jesus can have their sins forgiven, can be washed clean, that is the message that our world does not want to hear. 
We have moved into a new world where forgiveness is never on the table. And Jesus says, it's always on the table. A world that says, nope, you have committed unpardonable sins. And even the church is getting on board. Oh, you committed this one, there is no grace for you. And Jesus says, yes, there is. Yes, there is. There is grace for you, no matter how vile you are. There's a new Phariseeism in the world. It says it's claiming, I'm for the justice of God, but your hearts are far from him. Hearts are far from him. Jesus' words far better, isn't it? This is a marvelous call, isn't it? Repent, change your mind, and you will enter the kingdom. You will. It's this marvelous call for sinners to enter in the kingdom that, that Jesus extends to all who will listen. And this ties in now with his marvelous mission. How is it possible that tax collectors, who were tax collectors, by the way, Tax collectors were those who abandoned their country. They would, we would call them traitors. You have bought into another ideology that has betrayed your nation. He says you can come in. Prostitutes, sexually deviant. How is Jesus able to extend grace? <laughs> By the way, our churches should extend grace. The most vilest of offenders who, of whom we are should feel like this is good news when they come here. There's judgment, but they should hear the good news. And they should hear this message, that you can enter the kingdom if you change your mind. Marvelous mission. No sooner did Jesus finish this first parable, and I'd imagine the Pharisees were like, who does this guy think he is? Tax collectors and prostitutes are going to the kingdom? He's clearly a kook. He says, I got another story for you. And, and, and before they can even respond, he, he jumps in and he, and he says, this time, it's a story about a, a master. He's got, he's got a massive estate. <clears throat> and he decides he wants to build his own vineyard. And he's put lots of care into it. Jesus says he builds a fence around it. He digs out a wine press. He built a watchtower. And then he hired out tenants or, or farmers to, to work it and to keep it. These details speak not only of the master's love and care for his vineyard, but also his absolute right and sovereignty over it, doesn't it? He owns the vineyard. This is his property. And he's done everything for this vineyard so that it can succeed, if you will. He's done everything that it needs so that it may bear fruit for him. And all this makes the rest of the story all the more appalling. Jesus tells us that the master went away on a journey, went to another country, and he entrusted the vineyard to these tenants that he had hired out. And when it had come time for the harvest, when the, 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 the grapes would be, would be uh, Budding, I don't know how grapes, but you know, what, what do grapes do? I lost it there. But anyway, when grapes come out, all right, you can tell I did not work on a farm. Andrew, you probably did. You know what that, okay, I, I've stumped you too. So anyway, when grapes, grape, all right, 
He calls. He's like, all right. He sends his servants. Hey, I want you to go and get what is mine, the fruit that is due to me. What do these servants do? Well, Jesus tells us. They beat one. They killed another. And they stoned another. I mean, where did he get these tenants? Where did he get these farmers? And you think that would have been enough. He would have fired them, but no. He sends even more servants to them. More than he did at first. And Jesus says, they do the same. Now, surely, surely that had been enough. No. The master says that I'll send my son. I'll send my my flesh and blood. And they'll respect him. And just like Joseph's brothers who saw him from afar and plotted to kill him. So these tenants saw him and said, look, that's the master's son. Let's kill him and take the whole place for ourselves. What a gruesome, dark story. The first one's kind of, oh, I can understand rebellious teenagers. This one got dark quick, didn't it? So they throw the son outside the vineyard and they kill him. What's Jesus trying to communicate in this story? Well, the master clearly represents God the Father, right? What's the vineyard? The vineyard's Israel. The nation. It's kingdom people. The tenants, they're the shepherds of Israel. The religious leaders, if you will. The servants, they're the prophets that God had been sending to Israel time and time and time again And the son is Jesus. In this story, Jesus basically summarizes in a a parable. The history of Israel and how God has lovingly cared for them, given them everything that they need, but every time he sought the fruit of righteousness from them, he didn't get grapes, he got wild grapes, sour grapes. And they killed the prophets sent to them. They rejected the messengers. But out of God's patience, his enduring patience, he sent his messengers extending grace time and time and time again, calling them to change their mind. And this culminated in the father sending his son, which is where we are. As the suffering servant, he would be cut off from the land of living, put outside the vineyard, outside the city walls, and be put to death to redeem his people by his blood. This is what Jesus gets at. Here's that passage I said is so cryptic in verse 42. Have you not read, he says to the religious leaders, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes or our sight. What's so marvelous about this? What's so marvelous about this story that all the servants of the master were killed and ultimately the son was killed? Because these tenants wanted to build their own kingdom. And they saw the stone and they disregarded. That stone is no good to us. And that rejection of that stone was the means by which 
would become the cornerstone of a new building, a new kingdom, if you will, a new people upon which the promises of God would be met. The, the religious leaders represent those in the long line of Israel's unfaithful history who have always resisted God's love and authority, putting his messengers to death. If you remember Stephen when he is stoned, what gets him stoned? He says, you stiff-necked people have always resisted the Holy Spirit. And he went through history and how they rejected God's people all the way since Moses. They're doing the same thing. Yet in God's infinite wisdom, Jesus would be like a stone disregarded from a building project. It's not cut out the way we want. It's not marble. It's not the right material. They reject it. Yet this stone that's been rejected becomes the cornerstone, the setting of a foundation of a new building. What's Jesus getting at? Why all this, this language of stones and buildings? Israel is about to reject her king who has been sent to her because they want a kingdom for themselves. But what's marvelous about this is that in Christ's rejection, God would do a marvelous thing by raising him from the dead. New life, brothers and sisters, comes from Christ's death. Death would be put to death in this rejection. Death would come to an end, and all who put their trust in Jesus will be given everlasting life and enter his vineyard, his kingdom, forever. This is why Jesus goes on and he applies. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. What? Given to tax collectors and prostitutes. Nobodies, the morally deviant. How is that possible? It's a marvelous thing in our eyes, right? The resurrection. It's going to become the cornerstone. A rejection becomes exalted. Because of the resurrection, Jesus raises cold, dead hearts that hate him. So that they can live in love and obedience to him as our king. And can inherit his kingdom which the father has so wonderfully prepared. That's what the resurrection does. And Jesus is anticipating it here in this story. But we'd be remiss not to notice his marvelous judgment as well. If we go back to the parable in verse 40. Jesus asks a question. Jesus has been asking most of the questions here, if you haven't noticed. He says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Again, the conclusion or the answer is not too hard to get. And the, the Pharisees reply, well, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. What in the world are they talking about? Jesus is talking about what's about to happen in 37 years. Do you know what happens in 37 years from this point? A.D. 70. Some of you are like, okay, big deal. A.D. 70. A.D. 70, the Roman Empire will ransack Jerusalem and tear down their building, the temple. 
Not one stone, Jesus will later say, will be left upon another. The rejection of the Son of God on the cross and his resurrection mark the end of an old era. That's why the temple curtain, when we get to the crucifixion, is torn in two. This era is over with. It's over. The old era where the blood of bulls and goats could never forgive sins. But the true temple is here. The true Lamb of God is here. The true sacrifice is here. The one who is sacrificed once and for all can forgive all sins, past, present, and future. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to birth something new out of his resurrection, a people bearing its fruits. Who are those people? Do you know who those people are? It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Paul says, with Christ himself being its cornerstone. What is this? Who are we as the church? Oh, we are the temple of the living God, not made out of brick and mortar, which is dead and lifeless. No, flesh and blood. We are all precious stones being built in this new temple, aren't we? This new edifice. This new dwelling place of God is not made up only of Jewish people, but of people of every tribe, tongue, nation. And they bear the fruit of the kingdom because their lives have been changed. If you've put your faith in Christ, the scripture tells us you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, what? The new has come, right? You're new. And this is the marvelous truth of the resurrection. Jesus takes what is dead and lifeless and makes it alive to dwell in his kingdom forever and ever in everlasting joy. Do not be offended by Jesus. Do not be offended or indifferent to this cornerstone. Because Jesus says the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And the one it falls on, it will crush him. You can't plead ignorance like the, or like the Pharisees. We don't know. You can't be a blind person because blind people trip over the stone. But you can stand upon the solid rock. You can take refuge in him. You can take refuge in the Lord. But don't be offended by him. His marvelous authority, his marvelous calling, his marvelous mission, or his marvelous judgment. Come to him, for he has come to you. Did you know that? He has come to you to redeem you from all your evil ways, all your hurts and pains, so that you may bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit, right? He changes your lifeless heart, gives you a heart of flesh. He places His Spirit within you so that you produce the fruits of the kingdom. Do you want your life to be changed? Do you want to enter into His kingdom, His vineyard, which has been perfectly prepared for you? Come to Jesus, because He is rejected, but He has been raised for our justification our forgiveness, our everlasting joy. Let's pray.
Jesus, you are the stone which has been rejected, but you have been highly exalted and given the name which is above every name, in which every knee in heaven and on earth will bow, and they will confess that you are the Lord. Lord, we pray now that you would give us the assurance that in Christ we have died. In him we have risen. In his life we live. In his victory we triumph. In his ascension we will be glorified. Oh, precious Savior, precious Redeemer, you who are lifted up upon a cross were ascended to the highest of heaven. You were a man of sorrows crowned with thorns, but now as the Lord of life, you have been crowned with glory. Oh, what more could be done than has been done? Your death is our life, your resurrection our peace, your ascension our hope, and your prayers our comfort. And so we pray these things in the risen Savior's name. Amen. Amen. What a glorious morning it has been to worshiping together. I want to encourage you to stand as we sing this morning as people of the risen.